When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number one in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, February the 5th. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. First, I'll be talking to Michael Jansen, CEO and founder of Chicago-based City Zenith, and he'll be telling us how COVID-19 will create a boom in smart cities around the world. And then I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about the outlook for the economy this year. But now, let's talk to Michael Jansen. Okay, well, Michael, tell us how... COVID-19 is going to drive a smart cities market boom? Well, there's a lot been written about that lately and from from a variety of perspectives. The the thought process is that uh, COVID-19 sort of forced cities to pause, uh, as it were, and in the course of doing that, shut down normal functions, which gives them a chance to reconsider how they wish to resume. 
And there's been a lot of discussion around repurposing of uh, traditional streets as pedestrian ways, converting uh, traditional storefronts into other things, public spaces, uh, things that can help to revitalize and, and change cities as they, you know, kind of come back to some semblance of, of normality. Also, I think COVID taught us that certain cities were far better prepared to respond to the outbreak. Cities that had deployed widespread smart city, especially sensor-based technologies that were able to track movement, that were able to, to, to push data to a central hub, had an advantage. So a, a number of East Asian cities, Southeast Asian cities uh, that had uh, deployed these technologies ahead of their counterparts, especially in the United States, uh, had was able to kind of hack together a little bit of a you know, makeshift digital twin, if you will, of uh, putting together apps and other things and maps and other, other available sources, but they had the tools, so it, it helped them. I think the, the, the lesson of that will be that being able to know about real-time movement in cities is important. And uh, not just of, of vehicles, but of people and uh, of all assets and logistics, frankly. So it, I, I think it, it is actually accelerating the market. And I know that projections looking five years out have, have changed since COVID and they've gotten much, much higher. Uh, well, uh, all of these, all of these uh, things like uh, smart cities prepare us for uh, stuff like, say, for example, future pandemic outbreaks, which are more than likely, but also issues like... Um, flooding and all that sort of stuff and also you've got a whole lot of energy saving and solar capacity sure it does there are a number of, of functional areas that smart cities touch from mobility to water to information technology to things which had nothing to do with technology like inclusion social equity things of that nature uh, resilience is a big topic these days how cities can respond to their unique you know, sets of challenges that they face. So I think, you know, the market actually is, you went through a, a long discovery phase. You know, smart cities as a subject, we began to see the earliest smart city conferences in 2008, something like that, maybe just a tad before. And, and then within like eight years, they were as commonplace as any other conference. But they really a market had not developed. That was the problem. There was a... A lot of goodwill, a lot of intention, no shortage of pilots, but no real market. I think that that's changing a, a bit now. I think that there really is a, a, a market for a number of quote-unquote established smart city technologies, including sensor technology, that touch all those areas, including things like data platforms, which we do, including things like all the, all the equipment behind all of this, from smart building technologies, energy management uh, technologies and new savings technologies. All these are the components of this that there's now enough of a market for to, to really address. We look at smart cities, not really as entire cities. We look at our work is mostly a part of the city, like a city within a city, a campus, a district, a, um, it could be a whole city. We have done that, but most, most likely a focused development of some kind that, may have a transformational role in that city, but it's not an entire city by itself. So often our projects require us to first create a digital twin of that area of the city first and embed a lot of local, uh, what we call GIS data later is to kind of 
build up this story of data that then the architects and engineers can begin to experiment with by um, importing 3D models and moving things around and testing things like everything from solar analysis to uh, flood resilience, things like that. So the nice thing about having all this in a digital environment is that you can make changes. And uh, once it's uh, enriched with local with data, whether that be something as, as simple as energy star data, a local database from the city to sensor data, which could be provided by a private company. You know, and all that comes together and provides a really rich environment from which to run analytics for these complex projects. And that's really what we, what we do. We, we license our technology to companies that build large projects, and then they deploy this technology again and again and again across their portfolio of, of work. And at the moment, we've been focusing a lot on things which have a decarbonization focus. Most of our projects have some sort of use case or goal to help the either the operators or the owners to achieve carbon neutrality goals. So it's getting really interesting. It's quite timely with all this happening. We were we, in fact, launched an initiative last year before the elections called Clean Cities, Clean Future. And that initiative was intended to, to build awareness of the use of digital twin technology to help solve big problems like helping the cities become more resilient to uh, climate change, helping them uh, to actually measure their carbon inventories and then respond effectively to by developing accurate uh, resilience and, and, and decarbonization strategies that result from that. So it's been an interesting uh, evolution over the last you know, year or so in particular. And every million dollars that we raise in this current capital raise that we have uh, underway, we'll donate another digital twin to another city. So we'll soon be announcing the first city, which is in, in America. And we have interest from cities all over the world, including Australia. So. Yeah, there could possibly be an Australian city, we hope, in, in these 10 cities. Um, so you're saying that a lot of these cities are going to follow down the direction that, that was set by Singapore years ago? I think so. I think that Singapore uh, did has always been on the edge of, of doing things that are new and different. It's a, it's a city that prioritizes efficiency as a a matter of national pride. And it's a, well, I love the place, you know, for as a smart city, anybody, you can't help but love every visit to Singapore. Uh, lots of friends there. I've probably been there three dozen times in my life. I think that the one challenge with Singapore as a kind of progenitor of smart city ideas for the rest of the world is that it is such a one-off. And it has always been such a one-off that technologies that it can develop for itself and get away with implementing are often hard to do in other places. So as an example, they spent tens of millions of dollars developing a, a, a kind of digital twin project that really only Singapore would ever have potentially any, any use for that, that no one else is going to ever do. And I think that the real challenge was not to kind of create, if you will, uh, borrow a term from the fashion industry, like the, the haute couture version of the digital twin, but the one that everybody was going to wear, right? The blue jeans version of the digital twin that we all were going to use because they've worked and, and we liked them. And so I think that's harder, you know, easier said than done, actually. It took years of trying to uh, invent ways to manage all the complexity that you do when you're dealing with a project like this. And what I can say, though, is that there are a lot of recent advances in technology have not made it quite possible. I mean, 
if it weren't for some things that have happened in the past two years, it'd be difficult to even do this, but it has enabled us and others to, to even uh, be able to do these types of things. So the market's big, it's like $6 billion already and going to like 50 billion in the next four years, it's, it's a big opportunity. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And also, uh, you know, so you, you've learning lessons from Singapore and fortunately we have digital technology, which is now making it all the more possible. Sure. We do. I think that's the nice part. Um, I, I do see that if you think about it, different industries digitized in, in, uh, at different times in, in the evolution of digitization generally. I mean, uh, the cell phones were in that space immediately. The, the, the telephone industry was right at it. Kind of government took a bit in the beginning, certainly a procedural government. Uh, there were certain types of the automobiles were kind of kind of hard at it, but then they kind of slowed down, but then Tesla pushed everybody. Now they're kind of hard at it again. So, you know, it's just, it's how technology and, and the building world has always just been slow and the city is particularly slow. I mean, to adopt technologies, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think what happened was that the part of the reason is that the industry is just so big. It, you know, there's, there's just, there's a, over a hundred trillion dollars worth of real estate assets out there in the world today. So, it's a big industry. Uh, to get it to move took took a lot of time. Uh, the nice thing is that I, I think the, the 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 general digitalization of the world really now is making its way into and through cities. Uh, I think we're starting to see some really nice projects. We've done some of them. Many companies are involved in interesting things from Cambridge to Skoklovo in, in Russia to uh, you know, things happening in the States. We're involved in something in Orlando with New Mexico. We did an a, a, a entire capital city in South India with Norman Foster, who was the chief architect there. We did the first ever, I think, digital twin that came from scratch. So all these things are happening. And I would say that Singapore kind of helped be the daring one that, that, that was bold enough to give it a first shot. If it wasn't for them, I don't know if others would have kind of suck their necks out there quite as quickly. Michael, it will be fascinating to watch and uh, we'll, be, we'll be monitoring that very, very closely. And thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, I wish I could be, given what you just told me about the weather, but uh, <laughs> we'll have to save it for another time. Thanks okay, time. well, looking forward to that, Michael. Thank you. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul, tell us how you see the economy travelling this year. Well, I think... As far as Australia is concerned, better than I would have expected three and certainly six months ago, but with some concerns about potential drags from developments overseas, I think the main reasons for being more optimistic about the Australian economy are first that we have done really well at keeping the virus at bay. Now, if you've been living in parts of Sydney or Brisbane or most recently Perth, you might question that. But the outbreaks that have been seen in those three cities are tiny by comparison with what the United States, Europe and even Japan and Korea have been grappling with over the past couple of months. And our figures remain amongst the lowest in the world. And I think the evidence of the last 10 months is that unless you've got the virus under control, you cannot have a sustainable economic recovery. So we have done very well on that front. The second thing is that 
given that we've done well on keeping the virus at bay, our recovery has also tracked more strongly and sustainably than would have been expected. In particular, more than 90% of Australians who lost their jobs during, March, during April and May have since either regained them or found other work. And that's a very high percentage by international standards. Moreover, Australians, whether they've been working or have been on JobKeeper or have been in receipt of higher than usual government payments whilst they've not been able to work, have managed to stash away more than 125 billion additional by way of bank deposits, which gives them a cushion as levels of government support are wound down. And we've seen much higher levels of, for example, retail sales, motor vehicle purchases, and borrowing for housing, not only than we'd seen immediately pre-pandemic, but indeed prior to, in the year or so leading up to the onset of the pandemic. So there's been a very strong recovery. And the third reason for being optimistic is that the transitions away from extraordinary levels of government support have so far gone much more smoothly than you could have anticipated three or six months ago when those support measures were first introduced. And let me give you two examples of that. The first is that we've seen JobKeeper payments step down at the beginning of October from the initial $1,500 a fortnight to $1,200 a fortnight and the introduction of a new lower rate of $750 a fortnight for those people who'd been working part-time prior to the onset of the pandemic and some of whom were getting paid more under JobKeeper than they had been when they were previously working. It's clear that that step down at the beginning of the December quarter had no impact on job creation at all. There weren't waves of job losses. And although we don't yet have hard data for what's happened since the second step down in the level of JobKeeper payments at the beginning of January, there haven't been any anecdotes at all of widespread job losses, which if there had been job losses, we would have heard about them in the media or on social media and the like. Similarly, the transition away from mortgage and small business loan repayment deferrals has gone remarkably smoothly. At the peak in July last year, more than 11% of mortgages and almost 18% of small business loans weren't being serviced. But as of the end of November, less than 3% of each of those categories of loans were still being subject to deferral arrangements without there being any foreclosures or insolvencies of the sort that had been predicted as almost inevitable when those arrangements were first introduced and we knew that they would have to end at some point. And I suppose finally, uh, our grounds for being optimism is that although we haven't started vaccination programs in Australia yet, vaccinations are going to be rolled out ahead of the schedule that had been laid out in last year's federal budget, for example, which called for them to be widely available in the second half of this year. Well, we know that probably by the time our winter arrives, a significant proportion of the Australian population, and especially those who are most vulnerable, will have been vaccinated. So that 
combined with our success in keeping the virus at bay before vaccines become available, I think means we can be much more confident about there being a sustainable economic recovery in Australia over the course of this year than would have seemed possible three or six months ago. Nonetheless, the recovery seems to be quite patchy. I mean, parts of the economy are in dire straits. For example, tourism is in serious problems. And of course, you've got education. Well, yes, that's undoubtedly true. And tourism is not going to recover until the government decides to open our international borders. And notwithstanding how well we're doing, the fact that many other parts of the world are still having enormous difficulty getting on top of the virus means that the government's probably right to push back the timing of opening of our borders. And until that happens, we're certainly not going to see a recovery in international tourism. And for as long as Australians are concerned that state governments will abruptly pull down borders with very little notice, as we've seen in the case of Western Australia this week, then probably domestic tourism won't fully recover either. Although, as I think is becoming increasingly obvious, there is actually a net benefit to the economy as a whole from the inability of people to cross our international borders that might not have been obvious and obviously doesn't detract from the pain that the tourism sector is experiencing. But remember that since at least the early 2000s, Australians have spent more overseas as tourists and travellers than foreigners have spent in Australia. So the fact that Australians aren't spending billions of dollars on overseas holidays means that those billions are actually available for expenditure within Australia if people want to. And I suspect that some of the unexpected strength we're seeing, particularly in discretionary household purchases such as white goods and brown goods, furniture, clothing and motor vehicles, is coming from the fact that people aren't spending money on holidays and are spending that money on those kind of goods. Indeed. and uh, But at the same time, there are warnings. There's going to be an explosion of insolvencies this year. Well, yes, we've had those warnings before. And as I said, people thought that when the mortgage and small business loan repayment deferrals came to an end, which we all knew that they would have to, that's when you would see a wave of insolvencies and bankruptcies. But as I mentioned before, APRA data show that the proportion of mortgages which are not being serviced has fallen from a peak of over 11 to about two and a half. And the proportion of small business loans that are not being serviced has fallen from a peak of over 18 to less than 3% without there being any insolvencies or bankruptcies or a wave of foreclosures at all. So while there's still some risk, of course, of that, that risk is now much smaller than we had thought it would be in the middle of last year. And likewise, when JobKeeper finishes, there are going to be some businesses that won't be able to survive, or at least won't be able to survive without reducing their headcount. But A, that number's a lot smaller than we had feared it would be last year. And B, it's inevitable that at some point the government has to move away from supporting existing businesses and jobs, which was very necessary at the height of the pandemic, towards nurturing 
those businesses and those jobs that are likely to be sustainable in the post-COVID new normal, whatever that is. We don't know exactly what it is, but I think we know in several important respects it's going to be different from what it was. And to support businesses and jobs that don't have any realistic chance of surviving in the post-COVID new normal beyond a period that gives people a chance to adjust is just simply wasting taxpayers' money. Indeed, but uh, the other issue is unemployment. I mean, that's uh, coming down, but it's still above 6%. Yes, it is. The official unemployment rate 6.6%, although as the Treasurer has recently said, that's lower than Treasury had advised him that it would be at the end of 2020. And even though we know that the official unemployment rate doesn't capture the full extent of joblessness, the effective unemployment rate that I calculate, which includes people who are officially employed but aren't actually working any hours, and also makes allowance for people who dropped out of the workforce and hence weren't counted as employed or unemployed in the months immediately after the pandemic, and a, a number that's actually gone pretty close to zero now, uh, the effective unemployment rate has come down from a peak of over 18% in May last year to 72 And that's remarkably rapid progress. Yes, we've still got further to go. And the governor of the Reserve Bank just before Christmas said, probably the unemployment rate needs to get down to something with a four handle in front of it before it seems likely that wage inflation and price inflation will begin to pick up. And that's something that's been observed around the world as well, that the so-called full employment rate of unemployment, the rate of unemployment at which inflationary pressures do start to emerge, is a lot lower than we had thought it would be. And that's something central banks, including our own, will take into account in deciding when to start moving away from the extraordinarily easy monetary policy settings, and especially the record low interest rates that we've had since the onset of the pandemic. Well, Saul, it's like uh, those are all very encouraging words. And uh, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure, Leon. Good to talk with you. So what's happening in the news? Well, in a nation roiled by us against them politics, The GameStop saga has emerged as a morality tale, ostensibly pitting an army of commoners against an arrogant financial elite and fueling an anti-Wall Street animus that has simmered since bank executives more than a decade ago escaped punishment for their role in triggering the financial crisis. Former White House Press Secretary Anthony Scaramucci claimed on social media that the coordinated effort to inflate the price of GameStop stocks is the start of the French Revolution in the business world. The episode has raised questions about whether the financial markets have one set of rules for deep-pocketed professionals and another for the average individuals, where democratisation of finance stops and recklessness begins, and whether regulators have failed to police or even understand social media's effects upon markets. It also shows that the same disruptive sentiments that upended American politics in recent years are now taking aim at the financial system. Just as populist forces challenged a system of globalisation that favoured Wall Street and giant corporations rather than factory workers, a grassroots reaction against financial markets tilted to benefit the rich may be underway. Organised in online forums and traded with fee-free brokers such as Robin Hood, small-time investors have driven a 16,000% rally in the shares of video game retail of GameStop, scooping up assets big fund managers have bet against. The phenomenon spilt over into silver late last week. 
it peaked at US $30.03 an ounce, having surged more than 11% overnight, its biggest one-day rise since 2008, taking gains to about 19% since last Wednesday. The jump set off a rally in silver mining stocks from Sydney to London, with Fresnillo shares soaring 20.5% to top the UK blue-chip FTSE 100 index. The action in silver, following thousands of Reddit posts and hundreds of YouTube videos, suggests a rise in the physical price could hurt large investors with bearish bets, while also marking a foray into much bigger and more liquid markets than individual stocks. And some companies have done brilliantly from the pandemic. Amazon capped off its pandemic-fueled 2020 financial performance with record quarterly sales driven by a surge in online holiday shopping with people stuck at home. The e-commerce giant posted fourth quarter sales of US $125.5 billion and net income of $7.2 billion. It marked the first time Amazon reported more than $100 billion in quarterly revenue, days after Apple Inc. hit that financial milestone. At the same time, the company announced chief executive and founder Jeff Bezos would transition to executive chairman and hand over the CEO role to Andy Jassy, who has run the company's booming cloud computing business. The company Tuesday said Mr Bezos would hand over the CEO role in the third quarter of 2021. And Google parent company Alphabet has released its fourth quarter and fiscal 2020 results, and the numbers are staggering. The company made $56.9 billion in the quarter that ended in December 31st, which is a 23% increase over the $46.1 billion it recorded last year. And Pfizer said it expects to generate US $15 billion, or about a quarter of its total revenue this year, from sales of its COVID-19 vaccine co-developed with German partner BioNTech SE. Sales from the vaccine, on track to be the drug maker's top product this year, could top $15 billion if the company signs more supply contracts, it said. Pfizer aims to make $2 billion of the COVID-19 vaccine in 2021. Pfizer also said it expects there could be a long-lasting need for COVID-19 vaccines to combat new virus variants that emerge and to boost people's waning immune responses. The company is launching a study to determine whether a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, administered 6 to 12 months after the initial shocks, can extend and improve efficacy with more contagious variants circulating in communities around the world. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is currently administered as two doses three weeks apart. Pfizer expects to supply 200 million doses to the US government by the end of May. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept the cash rate on hold at 0.1%, as widely expected by market economists, and said it would purchase an additional $100 billion worth of bonds. The RBA isn't now expecting to lift interest rates until 2024, at the earliest. And a 0.9% rise in house prices last month has taken Australian housing values to a record high, exceeding the peak reached in 2017. Home prices are 0.7% above their previous September 2017 peak. Capital city prices are still slightly below their pre-COVID levels, but regional prices are well above CoreLogic's latest figures, showing national average property prices are now 1% higher than before the COVID-19 pandemic and 0.7% above the previous September 2017 peak. The increase was broad-based, with every city and broader region recording a rise in January. The capital city increases range from 0.4% in Sydney and Melbourne to 2.3% in Darwin. And ANZ Australian job ads rose 2.3% in January, the eighth consecutive monthly gain, pushing annual growth up to 5.3%. Job ads is now at its highest level since April 2019. Job ads is heading in the right direction and is now 5.3% higher than its pre-pandemic level. And the Bureau of Statistics says payroll jobs rose by 1.3% in the fortnight to January 16, 
but are still below the levels recorded at this time last year. The data is not seasonally adjusted. The ABS began recording payroll job levels only at the start of last year, and seasonal adjustments typically require at least three years of data. And federal labour has opted for a fight on industrial relations by resolving to block the government's omnibus bill of reforms before a Senate inquiry into the changes is even complete. Labour is vehemently opposed to one key proposal in the bill, to allow employers hit by the pandemic to negotiate two-year workplace agreements that do not comply with a better-off overall test. It is also unconvinced by changes to stop the increasing reliance on casuals. Despite the bill containing other measures, which Labor and the union supported, caucus resolved on Tuesday without debate to block the bill in both houses rather than try and amend it. And the Wharfies union is gearing up for a major industrial dispute at the Port of Melbourne in a bid to tear up an enterprise agreement that it views as an existential threat to its power on the waterfront. Maritime Union of Australia members on Tuesday overwhelmingly voted for industrial action options, including 24-hour strikes at the fully automated web dock terminal controlled by Victoria International Container Terminal, or VICT. The union is pushing for wage increases of up to 20% and wants to bring in minimum manning levels and a rostered week off every three months that VICT believes will force it to increase its workforce by about 25% just to maintain operations. The claims seek to overturn the only non-MUA stevedore agreement in the industry and standardise the conditions of a workplace that largely sidelines the union's traditional membership through automated control towers. It comes as VICT is set to expand its operations this year to the point where it will control 50% of container volumes going through the port. And Facebook's founder Mark Zuckerberg has lobbied senior federal ministers about the proposed code forcing the digital giants to pay media companies and the Prime Minister has engaged with Microsoft amid threats from Google about removing its search engine from Australia. With the lobbying offence in overdrive, with Labor expected to endorse the Morrison government's code after a shadow cabinet meeting this week, and with the Senate inquiry continuing to hear from stakeholders, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, confirmed the conversation with Zuckerberg on Sunday. Facebook has branded the proposed code unworkable in its current form, and has asked the digital platforms to be given six months' grace to negotiate deals with news companies directly before being hit with mandatory regulations. Frydenberg told the ABC his discussion with Zuckerberg had been constructive, but the tech mogul had not convinced the Australian government to back down. With Parliament set to resume for 2021, the platforms have engaged politically connected lobbyists and are pulling out all stops to try to scale back or scuttle the proposal. Google has threatened to remove its search engine from Australia, and Facebook has warned it will remove news from its feed for all Australian users if the code proceeds. And Microsoft has discussed with Scott Morrison expanding its Bing search engine into the Australian market should Google withdraw in protest over plans to force tech giants to share revenue with media outlets for republishing their content. The Prime Minister held talks last week with Microsoft Chief Executive and President Sachin Nadella, as well as with the company's Australian hierarchy, following threats by Google to withdraw its search engine from Australia if the laws pass Parliament. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has spurned industry calls for another big stimulus to replace a JobKeeper wage subsidy when it stops at the end of March, saying the economy is still gaining the benefit from federal payments worth $251 billion. The subsidy will be terminated after March, and the government will also be reluctant to bake in a permanent, significant increase to unemployment benefits. When it came to the job seeker payment, which is the old new start with a COVID-19 supplement added that doubles the rate, the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said the government had made a point during the pandemic of not baking in structural spending, spending that carries on in perpetuity. And CSL, the nation's biggest health company, has brought forward its first delivery of an Australian-produced COVID-19 vaccine, 
confirming it is on track to provide the federal government with a million doses a week by the end of next month. CSL had scheduled to deliver its first of more than 50 million doses sometime during the second quarter of this year, but production is humming along at its factory in Broadmeadows in Melbourne's north, so much so that delivery now will only be three weeks before the start of government's COVID-19 immunisation program. The news comes as Health Minister Greg Hunt has played down fears of a potential delay of 3.8 million doses of an AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine, known as AZD1222 and the same types that CSL is producing under licence that are expected to arrive from Europe before the end of this month. This is despite Australia not being among the countries exempted from the EU's threat to ban exports of AstraZeneca's vaccine amid production problems at AstraZeneca's plant in Belgium and claims the UK has hijacked doses of the vaccine produced in Brussels. Still, preparations are gathering pace for the Australian rollout. Pharmacists are ready to start administering the first jabs by early March after Mr Hunt confirmed they would be part of the immunisation program. And the Foreign Investment Review Board has given the nod to the $9.9 billion acquisition of Coca-Cola by Coca-Cola European Partners. The investment watchdog raised no objection to the deal pitched at $12.75 a share. The FIRB told Coca-Cola Amatil it had no objection to Coca-Cola European partners acquiring full control of the bottler, satisfying one of the conditions of the scheme of arrangement. The scheme also needs approval from Amatil shareholders, who are expected to meet in early April to vote on the deal. And AGL Energy is expanding its move into the telco space, launching a new range of mobile phone plans in a further sign of the convergence between utility services. The mobile SIM plans will offer discounts for customers who combine the service with an energy plan for AGL, which is ramping up its telecommunications product offering as Telstra takes strides into its energy domain. The power and gas retailer made it clear when it snapped up regional telco player Southern Phone Company in 2019 that it intended to build up the business, even though its entry into the sector was a sparsely scaled-down version of its initial plan, an ambitious and subsequently abandoned $3 billion tilt at Focus Group. It started offering broadband services in November, and take-up has exceeded expectations, said Chief Customer Officer Christine Corbett. And a big breakthrough for, for Brisbane-based Alum, the Biden administration has struck a US $230 million, or Aussie $302 million, deal for the Australian Diagnostic Specialist's rapid COVID-19 home tests. The White House announced a deal on Monday, saying it would drive mass production and slash the cost of quick tests, seen as a critical way to reopen large parts of America's battered economy. While Australia has clearly missed out on becoming a major manufacturing hub for the tests, Illum's success comes after it last year became the first and only company so far to win US Food and Drug Administration approval under the former Trump administration to make home COVID-19 detectors that don't need a doctor's prescription or laboratory access. The company's tests involve a nasal swab that is inserted into a cartridge and linked to a smartphone app. A result is generated in 15 minutes, raising the prospect that it could be used in a variety of scenarios where social distancing is difficult or impossible. And Macquarie Group has upped its bet on the future of its solar energy in Europe, spinning out assets, projects and key people into a separate development company, Cero Generation. Cero, which will be a standalone business within Macquarie's Green Investment Group, or GIG, starts life with 40 staff running a portfolio of more than 150 projects across Britain, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland and Spain, with a combined capacity of 8 gigawatts. Cero will be a developer, financier, builder and operator, focused on utility-scale projects, on-site generation and integrated storage. 
Although Britain and the European Union are aiming for net zero carbon economies by 2050, with substantial transition targets for 2030, much of the region is not exactly known for its preponderance of sunshine. And in the first blush of the profit reporting season, online retailer Temple and Webster made almost twice as much profit in the December half as it did in the entire 2020 year, even though sales growth has slowed since peaking in July and August. Releasing unaudited results for the six months to December 31, Chief Executive Mark Coulter said earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation soared to $14.8 million, compared with $8.5 million in the 12 months ending June 2020, and $2.3 million in the previous December half. Sales rose 118% to $161.6 million for the half, falling slightly short of consensus forecast for around $170 million, after soaring as much as 160% in July and August. And London-listed global betting firm Entain has confirmed it has lodged a takeover proposal for Tabcor's wagering business, which would break up the Australian $9 billion gambling giant. Entain announced to the London Stock Exchange on Tuesday night, Australian time, that it had made a non-binding indicative offer to acquire Tapcor's wagering and media business. The announcement came as shareholder calls for the split of Tapcor's strong-performing lottery business away from its struggling wagering arm looked set to be heeded. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Matt Riemann, founder and chief scientist at Shea Wellness, and we'll be talking about the company's free 30-day AI-powered personalised health program to help businesses support employees in 2021, with the aim to provide mental, physical and emotional health support to those who may fall through the gaps in small to medium enterprises. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the market outlook for this year. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking BizBioZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.